How was everybody? Good. We got that extra hour last night, so that's good, right? It's like the greatest thing in the world. Um, anyways, hey, glad you guys are here. I'm going to jump right into it today uh, because I want to hang out a lot at the end of the lesson and, and hopefully encourage some of you and, and um, just want to elaborate a little bit and hang out again towards the end. So I'm going to, I'm going to get into this pretty quick. Um, we're in the book of Acts. If you've never been to the church before, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. We go chapter by chapter, line by line. And the book that we're in right now, the book of Acts, is, is unique. It's an interesting book of the Bible. And if you're not familiar with it, let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. Those are the Gospels, right? It talks about the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the men and women that Jesus poured into and was training up to send them out after he was crucified and resurrected. And then the book of Acts that comes after those four books is that. It's the followers of Jesus going out, not only in their community, as we're going to see today, but in neighboring communities and eventually the entire world, spreading the good news about Jesus Christ, living like a follower of Jesus, healing people, praying for people, doing everything Christ told them to do. Okay, that's what the book of Acts is. And we're in chapter 8 this week. And so we were in chapter 7, obviously, last week. And it was interesting. And let me catch you up a little bit, kind of where we are. So the church starts in the first couple of chapters of Acts. And it starts and it, it expands extremely rapidly. 3,000 people in one day. It took this church almost nine years to get to that number. And in one day, the church blows up. And there's 3,000 followers of Christ. And we see that it, it's taken root. And at this point where we're at, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 followers just in this one city in Jerusalem. And so because of that, the same people that killed Jesus, the Sanhedrin, it's like the Jewish council, they're worried about this. They don't want this to happen. So they start putting pressure on the followers of Jesus. And where we're at in the last chapter, they put so much pressure that they ended up murdering one of them, a young man named Stephen, whose job was initially to give out money and to give out food to those who were in need. And he became a very powerful force in the Christian movement and was, was killed because of it. Right? And so the plot kind of twists, if you were here last week, where it says that the organizer of Stephen's death was a young guy named Saul, who was a rabbi, a young, intelligent, but very aggressive rabbi who did not like the Christian movement, this, this group of people who followed Christ. So that's where we're kind of at. Now, if you weren't here last week, what's interesting about Stephen's life is Stephen responded well. He responded to his call to be a Christian. He responded to his call to serve, to lead, he even responded well when people pick up stones to throw at him and to kill him. He didn't respond in anger. He didn't throw stones back. He responded with getting on his knees and praying for those people and looking up to, to Christ as Christ welcomed him then to heaven. So we talked about last week, our responses in life determine not only where we are in the moment, they're going to determine where we are forever. So our responses are very, very important. This week, we're going to talk about this that sometimes it takes a shove to get us to move. And I'm not talking about like a shove from the devil. I'm talking about sometimes God has to kick us in the butt sometimes. And sometimes God has to do th things to us and put pressure on us in order to get his purposes fulfilled through us and to get us to be where we need to be. So sometimes it takes a shove, okay? That's what we're gonna focus on a little bit today. Okay, so you should have a notes handout in front of you. It has virtually everything I'm gonna say in it. Um, 
If you don't have a notes handout, if you have your smartphone, the YouVersion app, if you click on the bottom right button and events, our church will pop up. And if you have a Bible, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts in chapter 8. Everyone doing okay? Good, good, good. <laughs> good. All right, cool. All right, so I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into chapter 8, and um, we'll see where the Lord takes us. All right? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I thank you, Lord. God, I want to thank you so much for this church, Lord. I, I, I love the people in this church. I love their humor. I love the fact that we can come and be comfortable and have a good time and, and just, uh, just come together. And, and, and hopefully, Lord, I pray that our, our minds are opened up today and that you speak to us and you reveal new things to us and that you take us to uh, uh, just another level with you. God, if there's anyone in this room who's not a Christian, they're not a believer, I pray that they feel welcomed and invited and comfortable in here and that they will, they will learn something about you and learn something about your faith, God, and, and, uh, and that hopefully that, that maybe they'll just come back and, and keep digging for answers. Lord, we pray for every church in our community. We pray, God, for the businesses in our community and the nonprofits, and we pray for our police and our sheriff's department and our firefighters and our government, God, and we pray, Lord, that this city is a city that glorifies you. And, um, and that it's a city that welcomes people and, and, and displays just, just you, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we lift you up. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 8. So we just saw the death of Stephen at the, young, the hands of a young man named Saul, and we go right into chapter 8. It says, Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria, that's south and north. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. However, Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on the way of preaching the message of the good news. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, here's what's neat about chapter 8. You're going to really get to see the neat ways that God works. Even when we don't understand it, even when there's adversity or even persecution, that God has a plan. So after the death of a young, innocent follower of Jesus named Stephen, after the death of this man at the hands of the Sanhedrin the Jewish council, and at the organization of this young, aggressive rabbi, the book of Acts is going to take a sharp turn. It's going to go a completely different direction and quite fast. So we go from martyrdom, someone who got killed for Jesus, and to that same day, persecution of the church started in Jerusalem. And then from that, we're going to see evangelism, that the message of Jesus is going to go out of one city, and it's going to reach the entire globe before it's done. So the first persecution was focused on a specific group of Christians. They were Hellenistic Jews. All this means is these were Jewish people who spoke Greek, they dressed like Greeks, they were immersed in Greek culture, and they had become Christians. Hellenistic Jews. They were targeted because they were a minority 
and because they were vulnerable. So here's what's interesting about that, though. The Christians that were scattered, all the Hellenistic Jews, right, who spoke Greek and were immersed in Greek culture, they were uh, scattered to areas that also were immersed in Greek culture. So what we see is this. This persecution happened. The disciples, the original disciples, the 12, they stay in Jerusalem. But all the ones who were better fit to go talk to outsiders were sent to the outside areas. So even in hard times when we don't understand it, God has a plan to make sure that the gospel gets advanced. And so in, this, in, in, in our life, in the moment, sometimes it is extremely difficult to see if we're making progress. And if you work with people, like in people, like if you're in education or if you're leading people, sometimes it's very difficult to see that you're making any difference. But God has a plan and his purposes will be fulfilled and we just have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And if we will do that, God's plan will start to unfold. So the persecution focuses on a single individual. Of course, he probably had help from the temple police, but we're focused on this, this antagonist name, Saul, who was a younger man, a brilliant man, and he led the charges in the street he kicked in homes, he walked in, he drug out men and women who proclaimed to follow Jesus and he was starting to persecute them and throw them in jail. So again, Saul's opposition to the Hellenist Christians scattered them away. And these were not the pastors. These were not the ones that walked with Jesus for three and a half years. This was the second wave of followers of Jesus. These were the volunteers. These were the lay, these were the lay leaders. And in another words, it was you guys. It wasn't the pastor who was sent out to the outlanding areas to build the church. It was just kind of, kind of the, the volunteers and the ones who did the day-to-day -day things of the church. And one of those was a guy named Philip. Philip was one of the seven that was chosen to help the apostles do the day-to-day -day operations of the church. He helped with gathering in money so money could be distributed to the poor. He helped with getting food so widows could, could have plenty to eat and people who were poor could have plenty of food. That's what he did. Stephen was also an outsider. In our day and age, Stephen wasn't raised in the traditional Christian home. He wasn't raised around people who, who went to the temple all the time and did all the things that the church people did. He was an outsider. And because he was an outsider, when he went to the area of Samaria, which is northern Israel, he fit in perfectly, and they responded well to him. And so that area wasn't even considered like a spiritual area. Let me get off track here for a second. There are some of you in this room, many of you in this room, like me, were not raised in a Christian home where you went to church every single weekend. And every single one of us have unique experiences, things that have happened to us, life experiences that we don't need to be ashamed of or like shy away from or not be proud of. We use these life experiences and God will place us in positions where we can minister to people that other people can't. Look at how God works. And so I'm not picking on any of you who were raised in church your whole life. You have a demographic of people that you can reach, but because I used to play in a punk rock band and I got tattoos and made a lot of mistakes, there's a lot of people that I can reach that maybe others can't. And that's a good thing. God uses all the things that have happened to us to advance his kingdom. And he did that with Philip. That's what he was doing with him. And so Stephen, the guy that, that, that got murdered in the last chapter, 
Stephen was the very courageous, very eloquent leader. Now, Philip was a little bit different. He was the aggressive evangelist. I don't mean that in a bad way, but he wanted to go out and just pray for everybody and tell everyone about Christ and bring people into the church. And so he's so kind of gung-ho. Philip goes into North Israel, starts praying for people, and he starts casting demons out of people. I like what the Bible says. It says they're screaming as they're leaving people. That had to be kind of scary, right? He's praying for people who are demonically possessed and demons are, ah, you know, going away and And he's praying for people who were, that was my best impression of a screaming demon. (laughs) He was praying for people who couldn't walk and they would walk. He would pray for people who were sick and they were getting healed. Of course, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me take another detour. A lot of modern day Christians, which I disagree with, think that these things don't happen anymore. They don't think that people are healed physically or that demonic oppression is relieved and people are liberated by the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I disagree. There is no evidence in the New Testament that says that any of the gifts of the Spirit or the power or work of the Holy Spirit has stopped. It continues on today. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is what drew a lot of people to the Christian movement. So seeing people delivered of demonic oppression seeing people healed physically, that caused a lot of people to follow Christ. But what we need to remember is this, guys. We need to remember that the miraculous still happens, deliverance still happens, people get healed still today, but that is secondary to the message of Jesus. The works of Jesus are secondary to the message of Jesus. And so the purpose of the miraculous is to draw attention to the soul-saving knowledge of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so where some Christians make a very, very bad error of worshiping the gifts of God more than the giver of the gifts of God, we need to make sure that we don't go down that road, that we worship God and that the gifts of God are secondary to that, okay? Next part, we get into some fun stuff here. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then, even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Now, here's where we get into interesting stuff. There was a man in North Israel named Simon who was an occultist, which means he had connections to demonic power. That's what that means, right? He was an occultist. This man was so famous and so well-known, not just in, this, in, in North Israel, but all around the world, that authors like Justin Martyr, who came along a little bit later, and Tertullian, who was a second century Christian historian, they wrote about this guy. They claimed that even people in Rome knew who this guy was. He was very, very well-known, and they considered him so powerful with sorcery that he was nicknamed the great power of God. This guy was very well known. So as Philip came into town, 
Philip starts casting demons out of people. Philip starts healing the sick and the people who've never been able to walk. And he sees this, and not only is he healing people, but people are being baptized into following this guy named Jesus Christ, all at the hands of this young guy named Philip. And so Simon sees that, and it says that even Simon believed, and Simon even got baptized. Now, at first, we're like, that is awesome. Essentially, this guy who is involved in in demonic work becomes a follower of Jesus. That's amazing. But we're about to learn that his conversion was not genuine. He didn't mean it. What that teaches us, guys, and I hope this doesn't offend you, is what this teaches us is belief in Jesus and even belief in the Holy Spirit and its power does not mean that we are saved. And so a lot of people, and again, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but especially in Southern Christianity, we say, well, I believe. That's fantastic. The brother of Jesus, James, said, even the demons in hell believe in Jesus, and they're in hell, right? So just saying that Jesus is up there, just even acknowledging that Jesus is all-powerful and the Savior of the world does not mean we are saved. It is living a life that honors Jesus Christ. It is having a relationship with Jesus that saves us. Grace through faith. And so what happened to Simon is Simon just got caught up in the emotion of it all. Simon was more attracted to the power that the disciples had He was more attracted to the crowds that were gathering around Philip than he was actually about following Jesus Christ. Now listen, guys, if we're not careful, we do the same thing. It's not that we really care to follow Jesus so much. We want the benefits of what the church community gives us. We see the good works that the church does. Hey, I want to feed the homeless too, and someone pat me on the back for how good of a person I I am, or we get wrapped up in the emotion of it. Man, the music is so good tonight, and my friend just got baptized. What the heck? You know, I'll do it too. And we get wrapped up in the emotion, and we get wrapped up in the consumerism of it. Hey, look, I can get like cheap counseling or free counseling, or I can come here and like it's cool in here and I can feel good about myself. And we become consumers. And essentially, we start looking a lot like Simon. And we don't really know what it truly means to follow Jesus Christ. Now, look where he ended up going with this. It says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard what was going on in Samaria, they had welco- that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, let me pause there for a second. Samaria is actually north. When it says they went down, it was actually in a valley. So they went north, but they went down into a valley. That's what that means. They prayed for them, so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power too, so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's what happened. The people, the the original 12 disciples in Jerusalem heard that Samaria was just rocking and rolling. People are giving their lives to Christ. People are getting healed. Philip is just killing it up there. So they decided to send Peter and John, the older, more experienced Christians, They sent them up north to make sure that everyone was hearing good theology, that everyone was, that the church was getting proper root, that it was growing in a healthy way. The reason why they did this, and this isn't a knock on Philip, 
Philip was younger and he was less experienced. He lacked the wisdom and he lacked the spiritual authority that Peter and John had. So they send in the, el- the, the older, more experienced Christians. Now, when Peter and John got there, this is where it gets interesting. There was a lot of people who decided to follow Jesus. They had been baptized, but they did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, that's confusing because a couple of chapters ago, it says if you believe and you repent and you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. And they had done that, but no Holy Spirit yet. Now, we need to be careful. Listen, this is, this is important. We can never base our Christian theology off one passage. You cannot do that. It's dangerous. You'll have bad theology. You have to take the entire text and build Christian theology. So the book of Acts is unique because it's a transitional book. It didn't always stay just like it did in the book of Acts. It transitioned into the epistles and Paul's writing, and we get more of what Orthodox Christianity looks like. The reason why that's important is nowadays when you repent for your sins and you're baptized, you you have received the Holy Spirit. I'll get to that here in a second. We don't have to have the elders of the church lay hands on you for you to receive the Holy Spirit. You can receive it by yourself in your bedroom. But in order for them to have proper theology and proper spiritual authority, they sent the elders of the church in to just make sure that everything was healthy and that everything was moving in the proper direction. So after saying all that, let me say this. Everyone who has given your life to Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit with you. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We respond with baptism and we are promised the Holy Spirit. It says, Paul writes in Ephesians, at belief, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And whenever you hear Christians say, well, because you haven't spoken in tongues or because you haven't done this or because you haven't been baptized in my specific church under my specific denomination, whenever you start getting taught this hierarchy of Christians based on spiritual gifts, that is bad theology. That is bad theology. We all, you cannot enter into heaven without the Holy Spirit. So everyone who has given their life to Christ has the Holy Spirit of God with them. So the point of them going up north and praying and laying hands on them was a unity issue. Jesus said no one can be born again without being born of the Spirit. So when they lay their hands on them, they're trying to establish pastoral authority. They're trying to tell them about submission and that you are to listen to your elders. And Philip was a great model of this. Philip was the less experienced, younger Christian who submitted to the more experienced, older Christians. This didn't diminish Philip. Guys, we live in a culture that submission is a very bad word in our culture. Even in Christian culture, a lot of young Christians who are like, I don't need to go to church. I don't need a pastor. I don't know what Bible they're reading. But anyways, when you get into Acts, when you see that this young man, Philip, submitted to spiritual authority, that didn't make him less. God blessed him and made him extremely powerful. In fact, we're still talking about him today, 2,000 years removed. God honored that. And so as they're praying for these people, Peter and John, it says that they received the Holy Spirit and Simon was right there, right? He's looking over their shoulders. What's going on here? And so Simon not only saw them do this, he probably heard them speak in tongues. He probably heard this miraculous thing happen. He's like, this is cool, right? Philip was healing people and casting out demons. These guys actually have the power to administer the Holy Spirit. And Simon's like, I want to do that. I want to be able to have that power. 
Here's why he wanted that power though. He wanted that power because Simon knew he could make a profit out of it. He knew that once the rest of the disciples left, Simon could say, yeah, you can have the Holy Spirit. It'll cost you 50 bucks, right? Isn't that crazy? How many times have you stayed up late at night and watched those jokers on TV, right? Hey, put your hand on the screen and also send in 1995 and you'll be healed. We swear, right? It's been going on forever. It still goes on. It still happens. And so this thing has been going on for generations, for years and years and years and years. And so Simon offers to purchase the ability to administer the Holy Spirit. In very simple terms, this is what he does. He says, I don't want to follow Jesus. I just want all the power. I want to be able to profit. And I want all the attention of being a Christian without any of the devotion of being a Christian. And it's easy to judge Simon, but... we might do this sometimes, guys. In fact, in Christian culture right now, there's a term called simony, derived from this guy Simon, which is the act of purchasing or selling church privileges or power. We still do this. And so not only in our day and age do we have pastors that live in $4 million homes and they're rock stars, right? Not only do we still have this, and I know this is none of you, but we also have congregations that are so selfish and so self-serving that all they want out of church is for them to consume and benefit. They don't wanna contribute or grow or mature or change. We just want all the benefits. And what we're not careful about is we have church leaders and congregations that look an awful lot like a first century occultist. And that's not good. So we talk about blasphemy. Blasphemy is when we believe something that offends the Holy Spirit. It it offends God. Now, there's a blasphemy of belief, but we can believe all the right things and we can have a blasphemy of behavior if we're not careful. Last part. Peter gets a little sassy right here. So Peter told him, may you and your silver be destroyed because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Please pray for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you said may happen to me. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. So there's an author named J.B. Phillips who translates verse 20 in a very uh, controversial way. He says, Peter was essentially saying, uh, saying to Simon, to hell with you and your money, right? That's pretty stern, right? And so the true heart of Simon comes out and Peter looks at him and says, your heart is not right. You've been baptized, you follow us around, you do all the right Christian things, but there's something wrong with your heart. And we learn from that, that we can get the external looking right, right? We can like have the right bumper stickers and the right, you know, ichthus tattoo, that's the little fish. We can have all that stuff going on. We can dress the part and go to the right church. We can tithe, we can even serve. We can have all the external things right and we can still have something wrong with our heart. Our heart cannot be aligned to God. So apparently some people can fake it, right? Hard to imagine, right? Sorry. 
And so Peter says this to Simon. This is a very important slide I want you guys to see. It speaks so much to our culture right now. Peter looks at Simon and says, here's your problem. Here's your problem. You're poisoned by bitterness and you are bound, you are enslaved by iniquity. Bitterness, by definition, is perpetually being angry because someone has treated you unfairly. It's offense. I'm offended. He says you are poisoned by your offense, the fact that you're offended. Iniquity is not just sin. Iniquity is being immersed so long and so deep in sin that you don't even know what's right anymore. You don't know what's right and wrong. You don't have a moral compass. Guys, we live in the most offended generation since people have ever existed. We are offended at absolutely everything. And we are poisoned by our bitterness. The fact that everything offends us. This was pre-Jesus days, so I, I get some grace on this. There's a show called South Park, right? And there's an episode I watched one time. <laughs> and in this episode, <laughs> I didn't know Jesus, so you can't judge me on this. There's this one episode where they're doing a Christmas play, and it's, it's, so, it's so true to our culture. And so the guy who's putting on the Christmas play has all the parents of the kids from the elementary school. And he says, okay, we're going to do a Christmas play. Who, who are offended by the word Christmas? You know, some reason. Okay, who's offended by Jesus? Who's offended by Christmas trees? Okay, who's offended by lights? And it keeps going and going and going to where the play ends up being a bunch of kids dressed in all black doing like interpretive dance to techno music. <laughs> because everything offends everybody. And so this is where we end up. And I remember watching that 15 years ago and being like, holy cow, this is us. You know what I mean? This is where culture is. We're also a culture that is so immersed in evil that we need the gift of discernment from God to be able to decipher this is not okay and this is. We are so lost and utterly drowned out by so much around us and we invite it in. We invite it in the church to where do, we don't even have a moral compass anymore. We don't know what direction to walk in. And that goes back to whenever someone does tell you the direction, we get offended. And so Peter looks at Simon because, dude, you're constantly offended by everything and you don't even know what right and wrong is anymore. You have iniquity and you're enslaved by that. So after being called out, Simon says, please pray for me. This isn't because Simon cares what God thinks about him. It's because he doesn't want God to zap him. He doesn't want to be punished. He doesn't want to perish. He doesn't want to die. So his repentance really isn't repentance at all. It's just fear. So guys, here's the thing about that. To truly repent is not just to feel bad about doing something. It's to go a different direction. So if you come up to me and you're just like, you know, hey, Corey, you're fat. And that hurts my feelings, right? Yeah, don't do that, right? That's mean. Hey, Corey, you're fat. And then you come up to me next week and you're like, hey man, I felt really terrible about calling you fat, but you're fat, you know, and you do it again. And you keep doing this 52 weeks a year, right? I'm gonna need counseling. But if you continue to do that and you feel awful about calling me fat, but you never stop doing it, you haven't repented, you haven't changed. So if you come to me and you're just like, man, I, I feel so guilty after I look at porn. What are you doing to stop looking at porn? Well, I mean, not that I pray afterwards, Okay, and then you're going to open up the laptop, do it again, and you're going to feel like crap again. You have to take some step to shut it or get rid of it or make some kind of change in your life. That is true repentance, is to walk a different direction. And until we do that, we have not repented. And therefore, we're not completely reconciled with God. We have an issue. 
And so because of what's happening in North Israel, right, it's just rocking and rolling up there. Peter and John are like, let's hang out a little bit longer. So they start going to neighboring villages and Philip goes his way as we're going to read next week. And they're praying for people and the church is growing. And we get a new position in Christianity at this point, a new position that is in the church. And that is called the evangelist. The one, and by the way, that's all of us, the ones who go out and they bring people into the body of God. And so what happened was this, Philip planted the seed, but he didn't even get to enjoy the growth of it. Peter and John came in and got to enjoy the growth of it. But what we see is this, Christianity is not an individual sport, it is a team sport. That we are supposed to be in it together, that I may get to plant a seed in you and you may move to the other side of the world and, and God may do something amazing with you and you may have some huge ministry and you might alleviate all hunger in Africa or something like that. And I may not get to see the fruit of that, but I get to be rejoiced because I got to plant the seed. I got to be at some stage in your development. And that's how we should look at it, right? It's not that church versus us or those Christians versus us or some kind of competition. Like we want everyone to go to heaven. And so we need to work as a team to accomplish that. Okay, so here's where I want to hang out for a minute. The church, according to the book of Acts, gained tremendous traction. I mean, right when it started. Like I said, this church is roughly about 3,000 people. It took us almost nine years to get there. The church in Acts, it took them one day, right? One day, and they had 3,000 people. And that was probably extremely exciting, right? Everyone's excited, and they're like, this is awesome. And then a guy gets murdered in the street. And some people were probably like, whoa, I didn't think that was going to happen. And then their door got kicked in and they got thrown in jail because they were a Christian. And people were like, oh, did that slow the church down though? No. In fact, it made it grow even faster. And it took it out of just the area of Jerusalem, get this, to where within a couple of hundred years, it would have become a global thing. Not just that, eventually a Caesar would become a Christian. And then eventually that Caesar would make Christianity the official religion of the world at the time. And even today, there are more Christians than any other religious group on planet Earth. And it started in Jerusalem, and it started with a young man named Stephen who was killed for his faith. It became a global thing after that persecution. So here's the thing. We tend, you and I, we tend to look at resistance in our life as always a negative. There is pressure in my life. Things are hard. There's this tension. It's not easy right now. It must be the devil. I'm going to tell you guys, sometimes it's not the devil that is putting pressure on you. Sometimes it is God. And when we always look at tension or resistance as a bad thing, maybe God, through tension, through resistance, through pressure, even through putting us through the ringer sometimes, God may be trying to force us out of our comfort zone. He may be forcing you out of this job because there's a depressed individual at this job who needs you to be at the cubicle next to him. He may be pushing you out of that comfort zone. He may be growing patience in us, understanding. He may be trying to get us to look at things from a different perspective. Man, if you're a 20-something or a college person in this room, and if you weren't at the last evident, so good, so good. We talked about immigration and we weren't going to like burn our voter cards or get everyone to vote a different way. That wasn't our objective. But we wanted to see things from another perspective. 
We're doing another one this month where we're going to have a Hispanic woman, uh, a man from the Middle East, and two African-American pastors. And we're going to talk about race. And we're going to ask them from their perspective in the hopes that God will show us, take us out of our comfort zone, and maybe let us see people with a little bit more empathy from a different perspective. Maybe God is shoving us out of our comfort zone so we will reach those that we would have never talked to before. Again, maybe he moved you in that neighborhood or put that person next to you at MTSU or put that person as your boss or whatever the case may be because God has you there for a reason. So whenever that pressure or that tension is in our life, instead of us saying, God, what the heck? Maybe we should say, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? Why is this pressure in my life? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? What am I supposed to learn? What am I supposed to do? So here's the thing. In times of pressure, and guys, sometimes it may be evil pressure against you. And all you have to do is you have to pray against that in Jesus' name, right? But if it's healthy pressure, if we will lean on God's understanding and not our own, pressure will strengthen us. Tension will unify us. Look at what happened last week. We had all this pressure and fear of a bunch of people who are gonna come in and just wreak havoc on our city. So what did that do? It unified us. It brought us together, we prayed together, we reached across denominational and even faith lines, right? Started reaching across the aisle to people different, we were bound together because the tension brought unity in us. People were even worried about the businesses on the square, like losing a day of work. And man, ever since then, the square has just been flooded with business. It has strengthened us. It has made us mature. You guys ever met someone who's never been through anything hard? Is that the person you go to for help and counsel? Hey, dude, I know you've never been through anything, but man, can you help me with this? <laughs> Said no one, right? Whenever you go through the ringer, you find the person with the most scars, don't you? Hey, tell me how you got through this. You find someone with some gray in their hair, right? Which I'm getting. Hey, how did you make it through? What did you do? Like, how did you survive this? Those are the people we look for. We look at the people who have some wounds from the battles that they've been in. Here's the last point that I want to make, though. Every single one of you in this room will receive tension. God-ordained tension. Tension that God wants to put in your life. Resistance. Sometimes very, very tough and confusing at times. Here's the thing though, before resistance comes, before oppression comes, whether it be God or devil influenced, we must be proactive with our faith or we will crumble under that pressure. Here comes some Christianity 101, guys. This is the most basic Christian teaching I can possibly give you. If we are going to withstand the waves and the winds of life, we must be praying. Not just praying when we think we're going to have cancer. Not just praying when, when we feel like we're not going to be able to make our mortgage payment. We don't just be proactive when our wife is walking out the door threatening divorce. We're not just proactive when our kids have gotten a DUI or they're so out of control, right, that we don't know what to do anymore. We pray before those things happen. We lay a foundation and build a relationship with God before those things happen. Guys, you're gonna think I'm nuts. I have a five-year-old and one that's about to be nine, and I pray for their future husbands now. 
that I don't hurt them, right? <laughs> and that they are good, godly men. <laughs> you think I'm joking, man. I was my eight-year-old at bed the other night, and you know, she's like, oh, boys, you know, like, but I'm like, God, send, send my daughter a good, God-fearing man one day. She's like, Dad, I'm eight, and I'm like, I don't care, right? <laughs> We're gonna lay this foundation deep and thick. <laughs> But I pray for that stuff now, man. I pray for my wife now before we have marital issues. So hopefully we won't have those things. Okay, so not just prayer, guys. We don't just, just wait until something bad happens or we receive pressure to pray. You need to be reading this book. Listen, we covered 25 verses of this book today. There are almost 1,200 chapters and we only did a half of one today. And look at the wisdom in one half chapter of this book. This book is full of wisdom. It's full of direction. It's full of knowledge. This is the mind of God put down on paper for us. Please read this. Don't wait until life is falling apart. Don't wait till pressure is put on you. Read this thing. So again, when that pressure comes, you'll have the wisdom of God in your heart. You will know what to say. You will know where to find some strength and a source of encouragement and help when we read that thing on the front end. And then the last part of this Christian 101 message is you need the church. More and more people keep saying, ah, you know, I love Jesus, don't really care for the church that much. You know the Bible addresses that in Hebrews? It says more and more as we grow closer to the time of the Lord returning, do not forsake assembling yourselves together. You need church. Don't look for, don't, don't wait to find Christian community. Again, when your marriage has fallen apart or you've lost a loved one, have Christian community now because when those things happen, when people hurt you, when people pass away, when times get tough, you have that support structure. You have those people around you who will hold you up and encourage you and pray for you and lift you up. You need that on the front end. Listen, if we will do these three things, Pray, read the word of God, and have Christian community. If we will do that now proactively, there is no amount of pressure and weight in the universe that you can't withstand if we've invited God to get under that weight with us. Man, that guy can hold a lot of weight. When the earth is your footstool, your financial problems aren't that big of a deal to God. When the earth is your footstool, any amounts of depression or hurt or scars or offenses, the Lord can help us with these things. But we have to invite him into the mix. We have to be proactive about our faith. For when these times come and I give you my word, they will. If you have not received a scar yet, mark my words, you will. You will. But if we have Christ next to us, if we're full of the word of God and the knowledge of the word of God, if we have a prayer life and if we have brothers and sisters in Christ around us, we will be able to withstand it. You will be able to stand up and you will be able to take it. And not just that, guys, you will come out on the other side better than you've ever been. You will come out. The only way we get pure gold is to turn up the heat. The only way to get a diamond is immense pressure over a long period of time you will come out better if you are proactive about your faith. Sometimes, guys, it takes a shove to get us to be where we need to be. All right, would you bow your heads with me?
As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there will be men and women up here at the front to pray for you. Listen, if you are feeling pressure right now, whether it be pressure from evil things or whether it be pressure that you feel like God is putting on you, but you don't know what to do. If you are feeling pressure right now in your life, I, I, I just, I, I'm not gonna beg, but I'm gonna ask you emphatically. Come up here to the front and let these men and women pray for you. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Don't feel like anyone's looking at you. Come up here and let them pray for you. I also want to remind you, if you're a believer in here, we have communion, and please don't take this lightly today because I feel like some of you need to be reminded. Those of you who are going through a tough time, a confusing time, the communion around us, the representation of the body and blood of Jesus. Listen, that is a representation of a God that died for us not to leave us hanging, not to bring us somewhere just to let us fail. God gave his only son so we could succeed for eternity. So we can succeed. I'm not talking about with money and job necessarily, that we can be the best we can be here on earth because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, because of his Holy Spirit. Take that communion and be reminded that God loves you and he's here for you. And if you are a non-believer in here, you're not a Christian, listen, my only thing I ask of you is be open-minded. Dig, go back and fact check me or read the chapter again and come back if you feel comfortable here, which I hope you do. And just have an open mind and keep digging. And I give you my word, God, God will reveal things to you. He'll show you things. Again, as your heads are bowed, I want to tell you, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Know that if you will just invite Christ to be next, with you, next to you, there is no amount of weight that you can't handle. There's no amount. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Keep your hand on my brothers and sisters in here today, God. Keep your hand on anyone in this room that may not be a believer, but they're curious Lord, I pray again that they felt welcomed. Lord, for everyone who comes up to the front and gets prayer, I pray that you honor those prayers. For everyone who takes communion, God, and remembers Jesus, that we, that we do this in remembrance of you, remembering what, you, what sacrifice and, and what level you love us, God. Lord, let us remember, Jesus, that you care for us and you want what's best for us. Bless my brothers and sisters and keep them strong this week. We love you, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys to death. Thank you so much. Have a great week.